Hi, Shalene. My name is Terry. I have been listening to your podcast, both of them, for a very long time. I'm also in the pod squad. And one day I let it keep playing and I saw your shoe closet. I knew that immediately that we could be like besties. So I have loved you ever since. I consider you to be one of my top mentors. Today I listened to the podcast about mompreneurs and super moms and I loved it because I always tell my husband, I'm like, everyone else can do it all. I said, why can I not do it all? And he said, no, they don't. And I'm like, but it looks like they do. I just loved your podcast because my son is my number one top priority and usually the people I work with do not have that same priority and that's okay because we're all at different points in our lives. So thank you for basically reminding me to stay in my own lane and I know you feel like you're going to get a lot of flack for that one but I wanted to tell you this listener is very appreciative of it and thank you so much for what you do. Hey there, welcome to this edition of The Shalene Show. Today is a cool episode. When I I don't think I've done one like this before. Today, we're talking about addiction. Actually, we're not just talking about addiction. Today, we will also be talking about the hope that you need to have in recovery. Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. My guest today is someone I consider a friend. This is Kelsey Humphreys. Now, I met Kelsey... I think probably more like five or six years ago, she came and interviewed me for her YouTube channel called The Pursuit. Now, at the time, I wasn't doing interviews really. As you know, like that's when the kids were really young. There was a lot going on. So I I said no to almost everything. But I remember checking her out on YouTube and thinking, just watching one video, like I connect with this girl. Like I know her. Like this is a friend I haven't met yet. You know what I mean? And she was interviewing like really big names. And I just was like, I want to meet her. I see someone that I can relate to. And that was very true. Like she walked in the door and I thought, okay, I dig this chick. So I know you guys are going to love her too. Who is Kelsey Humphreys? She's incredibly talented woman. She can sing. She can rap. She's a comedian. She's a speaker. She's a motivational comedian, as she likes to call herself. She is an author. She's a mom. She's a business owner. And she's a recovered alcoholic. Okay, now here's the deal. I want you to stay tuned all the way to the end because... After we officially ended the interview, Kelsey and I stayed on and we were just like talking about different things that we see in social media. And she brought up something that like I hadn't thought about before. And I think you need to hear it. I think it's a conversation we need to have. So please do yourself a favor, do all of us a favor and stay tuned all the way to the end today. Kelsey. You're the funny girl, and we're going to talk about something kind of serious today. (laughs) I know. It's an interesting situation, but I'm really, really honored to be here. I know how much you love your lifers. I'm a lifer, and so Mm -hmm. I'm just honored to be on this platform with you. Thank you for having me. I want to start by honoring you, first of all, for having the courage to talk about this. And I didn't know this about you until we were like backstage at one of my events that I had asked you to be our MC, our host. And I don't even know how the subject came up. (laughs) I don't either. Is it something that you speak about freely? It is now, yeah. And we can talk about that too, like when you feel like you should share about it. Like I had been sober for over a year before mentioning it to anyone. And professionally, it is still a sensitive thing to admit because what if somebody's like, well, that's a risk factor. I don't want to work with her. You know, I mean, Mm. hopefully that wouldn't happen. But I also get it if it did, you know. And so I did have some serious like qualms, I guess, to use a very obscure word. (laughs) Uh, Guys, look how big my vocabulary is about (laughs) it. 
you know, just talking about it, but I just felt like so many people who are very high functioning, like I was, Mm -hmm. had the issue and I just felt a responsibility to share about it. So after I felt like I was in the clear, then I started telling people. Well, let's dial it back. Mm -hmm. Take us to what it was like when you were deep in your addiction. And maybe if you can share with us the catalyst for making some changes, recovery. You know, a lot of people ask like, well, what was the rock bottom, right? Mm -hmm. That's what people want to know. And I think it's important for high functioning people, there isn't really a rock bottom. Like that's the thing. And hopefully now more of the stigmas are being eliminated, but people think, you know, like she's under a bridge with a paper sack, you know, like (laughs) she's homeless and destitute and has given up to addiction. But that's really not what I feel like a lot of modern addiction looks like. And so if I had to pick a rock bottom, it would be day 18 when on day 17, I was like, I'm fine. You know, I'd gotten sober or I'd given alcohol up and I was tracking. And on day 17, I was like, I can just have two glasses. I've got this figured out. And of course, I had way more than two glasses. And on the morning of the 18th, that's probably the worst I've ever felt in my life, not just physically, but the emotional disappointment in myself. That was my rock bottom. And that was my day one. And that was 1,878 days ago. Congratulations. Thank you. That's over five years for people who, like me, don't want to do math. (laughs) Difficult with math. Yeah. So if I understand what you're saying, you had tried to get sober on your own. You'd made it 17 days. And then day 18, you slipped back into it. Yeah. And how many times had you tried that? Like, was that the first time you'd ever tried to get sister? So many times. So there'd been more than one day 18. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. I know multiple years. (laughs) January 1st. I'm going with a dry January, you know, which a lot of people do. And I never made it through January, like probably five years in a row. As far as like what got me to the tipping point and why this time was different, I had finally started to pursue some of my big dreams and goals. Mm -hmm. And I just was sitting there. I was about to release my first book, which actually released just a few weeks later from my day one. And I just felt the Holy Spirit. Some people listening might not be comfortable with that term, but that's what I believe. I felt like God clearly impressed upon me. It was like I just looked up one minute and knew this is not going to work and he's not going to bless this if I don't get sober. If I don't take care of this Mm. problem, I'm not going to succeed. And I had a big mission and vision, which now I'm so excited to say that I'm living out. Mm. But it was this realization that, wow, you know what? None of this is going to work if I don't fix what's going on inside here. Talk to us about the conversations you have with yourself before you realize this is an addiction, like the rationalization and the lies that you tell yourself. Talk to us about that. I think that's actually a key indicator for someone is that internal dialogue because obviously there's a shame cycle, just like I talked about the day 18 waking up like, what have I done? You know, that's the beginning. And then you're like, well, I've learned my lesson. I just had a little bit too much. I'm never going to do that again. Next time I'll only have three glasses. For me, it was wine, you know, and it'll be fine. Or, or the classic, I'll only drink on weekends and special occasions. Like you start to make those new promises to yourself and you just can't keep them. However, I loved the Lord, was singing on the worship team, loved my child, loved my husband, and mm-hmm felt like, you know, I'm still a relatively successful person. I'm doing fine. You know, no one's dying. Everything's fine. And that's one of those 
rationalizations. How did you know that, like, what were some of the signs that you knew, like, okay, no, this is a real problem? I was mentally consumed so much so that the resource that I found that got me out of it was I Googled literally tired of thinking about drinking. It was on your mind all the time. Right. And so when I went to that website, it's a website, tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com. You can still Mm. go there today. And she posted an analogy of if it were corn on the cob, do you wake up in the morning dreaming about the next time you can have corn on the cob? Are you going to go out at 8 p.m. to go get corn on the cob because the store is going to close? Are you constantly Mm. thinking like, do I have backup corn on the cob? (laughs) (laughs) Right? These are the things that mentally, like if you wake up thinking about happy hour, could be something other than drinking. You could be an affair. It could be exercise. It could be food. It could be anorexia. You know, like that is an addiction. Like when you, it's consuming your every thought. Mm -hmm. And how does that look when you have a great job or when you are functioning really well and people don't see it on the outside? And what that looks like is you're able to push it out for a few hours when you're under pressure, you know? So like I had a meeting or I had a proposal due or I was, you know, obviously I had to get up and go to work every day. I was working in advertising at the time, a high pressure Mm -hmm. job that I loved. But those types of things, obviously you push it out. But then five o'clock, the second you're done, you know, that's what I would think about initially. So that's the sign to me and to anyone listening, wow, I actually am mentally trapped. How did this come on? Like, is this something that happened quickly over time, Mm -hmm. all your life? Like, does this run in your family, if you can talk about that? Yeah, you know, I have an uncle on either side, so it does run in my family, I think. But I think people are, I've read some different articles and studies about being on a susceptibility scale for addiction. Mm -hmm. Like we all talk about Mm -hmm. people who have, quote, addictive personalities, right? And so I am somebody with a highly addictive personality. I took Kelsey, Shalene Johnson, nice (laughs) to meet you. Exactly. (laughs) Like Shalene, when I gave up alcohol, I immediately switched to M&Ms. And when I tell you that (laughs) even traveling, I would travel with a jumbo Ziploc bag of M&Ms. And now that got me sober. So yeah, I made it through with the help of having sweets, which is what a lot of articles recommend. And now I'm like, don't do it. Because <laughs> then, yeah, then I was just addicted to chocolate. And today I'm 77 days sugar-free. Wow. Yeah, five years later. And I don't know how long I'll do that either. To just to be clear, I'm not making some broad statement that I'm giving up sugar forever because, oh, chocolate. So I have an addictive personality, but I do think that some things happened in my life where I was suppressing who I really was. I was pushing down my God-given calling, my passion, what I wanted to do. And I think I was depressed and looking for an escape. And so when you add escapism to addictive personality, that's where I think a lot of people end up addicted to fill in the blank, but especially escapism. Like if you are somebody who Mm. can't stop watching Netflix, I think people even have reading addictions, to be honest. People who I see are posting on Instagram that they read like six novels that week. I'm like, how are you doing that, girl? 
Well, you're absolutely right that it is escapism, which can take on many forms. Some are more socially acceptable than others. But if someone is able to read six complete novels in a book, you aren't, I mean, unless you're a speed reader, Mm -hmm. it's difficult to participate in life. The same can be true of someone who can't get themselves off of social media, Mm -hmm. who cannot break away from playing video games or shopping, you know, or work. Some, I think, addictions are certainly more socially acceptable than others. Mm -hmm. So you start drinking when you're 21, whatever. And then how does it take a turn? Can you share with us that trajectory? Again, with addictive personality, I think that it just probably looked on the outside like when Kelsey has a good time, she has a really good time. You know what I'm saying? And so that's (laughs) how it started, like just being a party drinker or whatever, just drinking a lot whenever it was acceptable to drink. But because that was such an escape, because I was binging every time, I probably could count on one hand the amount of times that I drank and it wasn't a binge situation. So that's an indicator there. But then it was such an escape. It just became like, man, that was so great to zone out. We had a hard day at work. Let's just do that now after work on a Wednesday night, you know? And then it just became Wednesday night, Thursday night. We moved across, well, not across the country. We just moved across the country recently. So I'm used to saying that. But actually back in my 20s, we moved to a tiny town in Arkansas. My husband had a business there and it was I hated it. I hated it so much. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I would have done everything about that differently. But we were totally isolated and I was depressed in a very deep way. And that's when it got really bad because no one could even see. No one even was around to notice because we had no social life. We had no friends. So the isolation, I think, is what really pushed me over the edge from she might have a problem to legitimately has a problem. And I'm sorry to ask so many like specific questions, but I just like, I want to have an understanding of it. When you would drink, let's say after work, et cetera, you weren't talking about like just having a glass or two. If you were to drink, you were going all into the point of being inebriated and could other people tell? Well, if anyone had been there, they would have been able to tell. I mean, most of the time mm. it was just me and my husband and he is a saint for the record, for sure, 100%. Yeah, I think when I finally told my parents, you know, I think they were like, mm-hmm. well, we wondered because we noticed any time the family had wine or whatever, you know, you went off the deep end. So it was noticeable mm-hmm. to those around me. But again, if you're high functioning on the outside, a lot of times people never see it. See, I, I'm terrible at picking up like after the fact, someone will go, wow, so-and-so was really drunk. I'm like, they were? Like, I miss mm-hmm. it. Were there some people that just didn't know? Like, if, for example, did your husband know that? You were literally drunk if you were having a drink? Well, when you say high functioning, would the average person not be able to pick up on it? Mm, I'm pretty sure anyone could have picked up on it. Did you think you were fooling people? Well, I can tell you this. I'm pretty sure I fooled people like when we had a work happy hour, right? Because Mm -hmm. I had a high tolerance, right? So I Mm -hmm. was able to keep up and have just as many drinks as everyone else, but was maybe actually you know, could hold it, could hold your liquor, so Mm. to speak. I could hold it a lot better. So I think a lot of people were fooled in that regard. I think people wouldn't have noticed. And maybe you had to know me really well to notice. But Mm. at that point, after happy hour, I would go home and drink some more. And that's the point where anyone around would have known, I think. And did your husband ever say to you, Kelsey, you've got to get help. You've got to stop. You know, I would 
be drunk <laughs> and be weepy and be like, I have to stop this. Da, da, da. Oh. And he said to his credit, I can't be this person for you. I think it would really hurt our marriage if he had become the drinking police. And if you are someone with mm. a problem, do not do that to your spouse. That would have been too hard on us for him to like shut down the party as I would have seen it every time. Mm -hmm. Right. So he would listen to me and he would talk about it and he would give sort of helpful suggestions like maybe, okay, well, maybe talk to a friend about it or maybe try to go for a couple of weeks, you know, very benign kind of suggestions because he was smart enough to know he couldn't be that person for me. Wow. Certainly there are those who reach this decision on their own, as you did, mm -hmm. really, it sounds mm -hmm. like. How often do you think what needs to happen, though, is an intervention? And would an intervention have worked for you? Yeah, that's something I think probably would have worked for me. I'm glad we didn't mm -hmm. get to that point. Mm -hmm. I would have been really angry, even though they were right. Mm -hmm. That's my personality, mm -hmm. though. <laughs> I would just be mad and defensive. And everyone's personality <laughs> is different. So I don't know. I think that there are a lot of times, again, for me specifically, I really relate to the person who's holding it all together on the outside. So that I think there are so many occasions where there wouldn't be an intervention because people on the outside wouldn't know, right? So I would mm. say if you are someone's closest, closest, closest friend and you know that something's going on, but probably nobody else in the world knows, you know, that's a tough spot. That's where I feel like maybe you should speak up. What if it's someone that you don't know very well, but it's just really obvious. Do you think people should say something, should do something? I mean, okay, I'll use myself as an example. There are times where I met people, I'm like, wow, this person is really, really ill. Mm. And the people around them, they must know. Mm -hmm. They must know. Why isn't anyone saying anything? Why isn't anyone helping this person? And then I struggle with, like, okay, Shaleen. Stay out of it. It's none of your business. Like, this isn't a best friend. This is an acquaintance. What's the right thing to do? Well, pray. <laughs> pray about that yeah. before you open your mouth. However, I, on the other end of that, was subconsciously, I think, and sometimes consciously waiting for someone to bring up drinking because deep down I was, again, we're talking about being trapped. You know, it's a negative feeling. So, I remember people would bring up like, oh, I'm not drinking right now. And I would be like, why aren't you drinking? Right. And part of it was like, I wonder if they gave up drinking. I wonder if they finally got free of this. Right. So if you're that person mm. in that situation where you see someone from afar, you don't know them that well, but all your radars are going off that this person has a problem. Maybe just, you know, if you could, let's say that you think they have an eating disorder, you bring up like, oh man, I've finally stopped counting calories, but some sort of something in a sentence that you could mm. open the door for them to be like, oh, I count calories. I hardcore count calories. And then you could say, well, what do you mean? You know, and start a conversation with them where maybe they can start talking it out. Because I think a lot of people who are trapped and depressed and scared are kind of waiting for someone to open that door. Well, you just made a really important distinction. You've said like to ask questions to invite a conversation. And I'm assuming what isn't helpful is to be accusational. Like, what are some of the things that we shouldn't do? Because you're just going to drive that person further away. Yeah, anything accusational. It's so hard because if we're talking about someone who 
you know, again, they kind of have their life together. They are going to argue with you if you come at it from a point of, hey, I really think you have a problem, you know, or just accusing them. I think that could be really hurtful, especially because we all know the cold, hard truth is that people are going to do what they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so opening Mm -hmm. the conversation maybe gets their wheels spinning on what they really want. Do I really want to keep living like this? Do I really want to keep drinking like this? So the conversation and opening it up to help them get there on their own, arrive at that. So maybe talking about how much better you personally feel after giving up something you struggled with, you know, I see those Mm -hmm. kinds of things instead of coming at it from a point. I mean, obviously people do real interventions and they work. I don't have any experience with that. So I can't, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. know, but for someone who's super high functioning, definitely just being conversational and try and let them get there on their own. Well, ladies, it seems as though a lot of us have just kind of wised up to the fact that we're living in our workout wear. In fact, you've probably heard the term athleisure. Like, it's easier to put on a pair of yoga pants and like a cute off-the-shoulder shirt than it is a tight pair of jeans and come up with an outfit. Like, it's socially acceptable. I travel a ton. I notice everyone is traveling now in their yoga pants, When I'm at the grocery store, when I'm visiting my kids on campus, like everyone is wearing athletic apparel. And ladies, I think we've kind of figured out like you don't have to pay a fortune to get top quality, really adorable fitness apparel. As a matter of fact, price really has nothing to do with quality, especially when it comes to Fabletics. I love Fabletics. I love Fabletics, obviously because of the price, number one, and number two, the fit. Number three, the quality is exceptional. And number four, super cute and functional. I guess five would be functional. I've all but converted my closet to Fabletics. I live in the stuff. I'm wearing it right now as we record. In fact, to be specific, I'm wearing the Myla high-waisted pocket capri in raspberry. It's so freaking cute. Like, I love their capris because their capris are really capris. Normally, when I order a capri, it goes all the way down to my ankle. Like, they have different lengths, which is awesome. They've got mid-rise, high-rise. Okay, this one is a fashion commentary okay so you can't always live in your yoga pants I mean you can but if you really want to be like adorably cute and super comfortable right and you know jeans are not comfortable wear a pair of joggers now if you go look at my Instagram you'll see you can make a jogger look super dressed up you can put it with a little stiletto that is so fashion forward put with like a stiletto and then a rocker tee oh my gosh their joggers are to die for Get the Daria. Their Daria joggers are super comfortable. They're super flattering. I love them. All right. Listen, you can take advantage of their VIP offer and you get two pairs, your first two pairs for $24. And if you're already a VIP, maybe this should just be a reminder. You need to do a little bit of shopping. I was just on their site five minutes ago and I'm like, oh, Lordy, I need all of these new colors. I need all of these new styles. I need joggers in every color. Ladies, do yourself a favor. Save yourself some money. Get some really cute new workout wear that's high quality that you will love by shopping at Fabletics. Go to fabletics.com forward slash Shaleen. What does recovery look like from day to day, especially in those early stages where your brain is saying, no, you actually, you need that. What does it look like? And where do you find your strength? 
Oh man. I mean, honestly, the one day at a time, it's such a cliche, but it's so real. I mean, it's so real. And I mean, even in recovery groups, people now message me and comment to me because they know I'm sober and I'll still get messages like, I'm just doing one day at a time, you know, one day at a time, one day at a time. And having support, having either if you have a sponsor or you go to celebrate recovery or any of those things, because those first two weeks especially are really hard. Not only do you Mm. have an addiction, you have a habit, both of which are hard. Oh, yeah. Dude, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So many of our habits are mindless where you're not even making a decision to do something. It's just, I'm in this environment. It is this particular time. This is when I Mm -hmm. brush my teeth. This is when I drink my wine. You know, Mm -hmm. like some of those habits are healthy and some are not. If you think about ways in your life that you've previously broken a habit, what did you do? A lot of times we replace it with something else. In my case, Mm -hmm. that was M&M's. But for some people, it may be having tea. A lot of people need the ritual of alcohol. So the ritual of Mm. making a fancy tea is helpful. I've heard a lot of people do that, a fancy, some sort of fancy beverage. And if you're listening, wondering about the difference between habit and addiction, I would say give yourself, try 14 to 30 days. I was just talking with a good friend who was worried about whether or not she had a problem. So she just quit. And she went 14 days and realized it was just a habit. She Mm. didn't struggle giving it up. It was more like, oh, I was about to do that without thinking. (laughs) How silly. Mm. And of course, she's way more productive and she's having the best business month of her life because she's not so, you know, drinking and the morning after you just get into a brain fog, right? We've all done that. So it was kind of like that brain fog was lifted, but she's not an addict. She just had a habit. And you just said she's having the best business month of her life. You know, whether you're talking about alcohol or any of the other addictions, insert addiction name here, Mm -hmm. once it becomes all-consuming, as I always say, like, you can't do all the things well if you're toggling back and forth. And if you have an addiction that's controlling your every thought, it's nearly impossible to stay focused, I would assume, on what it is you need to do. Exactly. And specifically with drinking or any of the ones addictions that are escapism, you know, you're not going to be as productive. Imagine all the time physically that you get back and then imagine all the time mentally that you get back. Both of those things are a huge change because when you would be sitting there just scrolling on your phone, mind numbed, right? Just mindlessly Mm -hmm, scrolling. mm -hmm. Imagine now taking that time and either A, physically up and cleaning your house or B, mentally brainstorming some big breakthrough in your life or your work, right? So both of those are huge that you get back once you finally quit either that habit or addiction. That's some incentive. Mm -hmm. One of my followers asked, how do those people who are close to you support you in your recovery, especially if those individuals were hurt by your addiction? I mean, I hope that she or he has taken the time to say sorry, because it does matter to Mm. say sorry for, you know, events that I ruined or just, yeah, just saying sorry for the time I was embarrassed, especially to my husband. I think that's the main one, apologizing to him. Once I was clear-headed and realized (laughs) how much of our life I had unfortunately messed up, you know, and could never get Mm -hmm. back. So saying sorry goes a long way. Mm -hmm. And then again, I'm a really big believer in making sure you're not putting that on people who can't carry it. If your best friend was super hurt and is not ready 
to support you, don't ask her or him to support Mm. you. Find support Mm. elsewhere. Same thing with your spouse, possibly your parents, Mm. roommates, you know, people in your life. If they were really hurt, they probably can't be your support system. And don't ask them to do that. When I discovered Brett's gambling addiction, you just made me recall this moment when we were in the therapist's office and his therapist looked at me and said, was kind of explaining some of the reasons why, not that they were excuses, but like reasons why he struggled with addiction and some of the pain. And I wasn't ready to hear that. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. You know, it's like, I don't care. We've all had pains in the past and we've all had, you know, I just wasn't ready yet. I, I guess I wasn't ready to forgive. And I certainly wasn't ready to understand his addiction. Mm-hmm. I later was able to. But in that moment, it's like, I didn't want to hear that. And then another thing that I wanted to bring up with you that I remember that therapist telling us, warning us that recovery isn't linear, Mm -hmm. that we needed to expect setbacks. We needed to expect that there will be tough times again or that he might struggle with triggers. And I like literally refused to hear that. I said to her, there won't be another time. If there's another time he needs to understand, I'm gone. Mm. You know, and that's how I felt in mm-hmm. that moment. And we did have slip ups after that. But in that moment, I just I was in so much pain from what the addiction had done to us mm-hmm. that I wasn't ready to hear those things. Can you talk about that notion that recovery isn't linear? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, first, to go what you just said, I think if you are someone who hurt other people, do not even attempt for them to be sympathetic. Because I hear that's what you're saying. You couldn't empathize or sympathize in that moment, right? Mm-mm. You were too angry, too hurt. You got that he had a problem and that it, a lot of it wasn't necessarily his fault and that it was a real mm-hmm. problem. But again, like if I had wanted my parents or somebody like that to feel some sympathy, it wasn't happening at first, right? Mm, so I think yeah. that was the emotion that we're talking about of not expecting that from people who are hurt for a long time. But as far as recovery, not being linear, man, there are still days five years later where I will tell my husband, man, I really struggled today. Not struggled like I was in the parking lot of the liquor store. Okay. Mm -hmm. Though that certainly would have happened probably in the first 90 days, but more just like longing for that escape. It's not even Mm -hmm. about alcohol. It's about shutting down life. (laughs) Clearly, I'm someone whose mental chatter is going a million miles a minute, right? And I think a lot of people, maybe if you're prone to anxiety, you're like that as well, where I just wanted to shut out all of the mental chatter. And so it's finding new ways to do that. But until you find new ways to do that, there are days it's very hard. And I think that's, think about it. If you have a big setback at work or your child is a terrorist for that day. For whatever reason, they're teething. They can't help it, but you just want to scream. Those are the days where how can you expect recovery to be the same as it was yesterday when you all had a Pinterest perfect you know, life? <laughs> so yeah. I think it's just think about anytime you're exhausted, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, anytime you go through something emotional, some grief, all of those things you'll want to escape. (laughs) Or at least I do. I'm like, oh, negative feeling. Where's the eject button? Abort, abort. And I didn't have that way of doing that anymore. 
And you got to find healthy ways to do that for sure. And once you find healthy way, a lot of people meditate. I actually haven't been able to sit still long enough <laughs> to actually meditate. So what I do is bullet journal, <laughs> which is nerdy, but it's like doodling. <laughs> and yeah. I'll do it every day, a little bit of bullet journaling and listen to a sermon every day. Those two things mm -hmm. that are kind of like Zen and then also doing cardio, which is just mental health. But all of those types of things, you have to find what works for you and build those back in so that recovery does become more stable. But it's going to be unstable definitely at the beginning. And then even later on in life, let's say you've been sober 10 years, but a parent dies. Are you kidding me? Mm, yeah. And give yourself some grace. You know, you may have been a rock star up until that point, but you go get yourself some support. You're going to need it. Okay. I was listening to an expert recently who suggested that all addiction is masking pain or trauma mm -hmm. and that for us to heal long-term, we have to go back and process those things or that thing, that event, whatever it might be. I know for me, that was really important. I think I probably would have transferred my addiction. And I think I just know that a big part of my own recovery from you know being a workaholic and Brett's too, required that we go back and figure out like what pain from our past or traumas did we need to address? Has that been true for you? Yes. But I will say it's more for me, like every so often I'll have an epiphany. There was a time where I was with a group and we were out <laughs> having fun or, you know, some people were having more fun than others. It's okay for me to be around alcohol right now. You know, I wouldn't ask if I went out with a bunch of girlfriends, I wouldn't say nobody drink, but that's where I am. Mm -hmm. So that's what I can mm -hmm. handle. But one of those things, and I looked around and I was surveying the situation and I had an epiphany right then about you know, maybe why in the past I would feel the urge to drink in those situations, why I would want to escape. So I definitely think whether you're somebody who goes into intense therapy and digs deep right off the bat, or you just try and pray about it and stay open and continue journaling, and you'll get new discoveries over time, which is more what I am versus again, I'm like always running at a million miles an hour. So it's hard for me to like stop and want to like dig deep and think about the past. I'm like, no, let's work on tomorrow. I don't care. Great. Mm, really healthy. Mm. I know. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a poster child. But you know, for me, this is what has worked, which is more of a journey of discovering those things. Hmm. Well, that is, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying you haven't done deep therapy to figure out like what is the root cause or pain or trauma or have you? I haven't. And I will say I'm okay. also a very self-aware person and not everyone is. I know I would benefit from therapy for sure, but I haven't done that okay. therapy yet. I won't ask you to reveal it, but being as self-aware as you are, do you think you know where the stems from? Like what pain it was that you were masking? Uh, yeah, I think there was a few things growing up and then I'll just give you the example at the hanging out with friends. I mm -hmm. am not super fun, Shaleen. I know this what? is, I know, I know. But like, I'm not somebody who like really wants to go dancing. I'm not somebody who loves to play. I mean, I'm very competitive, so we could play like charades. But there were just times where I look around and I'm like, everyone is having fun. And I would rather us be having deep conversation over coffee on a couch. Like, I'm much sure. more a deep one-on-one -on -one versus like the party atmosphere. And I think being around a party atmosphere, especially in college, everyone is having fun. And I'm kind of, 
I'm not enjoying this. So of course mm. I would want to become fun, right? So let's pour some oh. drinks. So that yeah. was a big epiphany I had that I realized, A, I'm not enjoying these kinds of social things and B, okay. feeling like I was broken or messed up because I wasn't enjoying them. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's difficult to make these sweeping generalizations like everyone who has an addiction must address their deep, dark pain on the, you know, couch of a therapist. Right. Some people actually can because they're very self-aware and using other tools like the Bible mm -hmm. and their faith can work through these things. I think it's a different journey for everyone. Mm -hmm. What tips do you have for someone who's listening right now who may be struggling with an addiction themselves? I want to speak to that person first, the person who thinks like, you know what? I think this is me. What tips do you have for them? Well, first, let's just try 14 days or 30 days yeah. and see if it's a habit or an addiction. If you're unsure, mm -hmm. let's just start there. Second is get support from a friend. Like right now, being off sugar, for me, I have a friend doing that with me. I don't know mm -hmm. that I, without that accountability where we're actually texting each other, I think I probably would have given mm -hmm. in because last week was my birthday and I had nothing. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I cried. Just kidding. I didn't cry, but I kind of <laughs> wanted to. So getting support from a friend, maybe somebody who will do those 14 days with you or those 30 days with you. And then if you don't need that because you already know you have an issue, everything got real for me when I actually told my parents because mm. they're not going to let you go back. Mm -mm. They're not going to be yeah. lenient, right? But it may not be your yeah. parents. It might be for you, like maybe a coworker that you see all the time, and they're not going to let you slip at happy hour. So I think telling okay. someone really close to make it real, and then obviously getting support. And I never went to AA because I was super intimidated by, you know, what movies and TV show AA to be. That website that mm. I told you earlier, tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com, the owner of that website, Belle, who literally saves lives, she has, and I don't know if it's still free, but it was free when I was there. And you just had to email her every day for 90 days. She became your online sponsor. Ow. Yeah. So I had to email her every day. If you missed today, she would email you and say, are you drinking? What's going on? Are you okay? So I did 180 days with her. And she also says, you know, feel free to just word vomit if you need to. And so you could just kind of share anything that you were thinking if you wanted to. It's just like a safe space. She was holding space for people. What an angel on earth, yes. man. We have to definitely put links to her yes. below. I hope there's some type of GoFundMe or way that we can support her because, I mean, there's just not enough people on the planet like that just really dedicated to helping and being of service to others. Yeah, she has stuff for sale on her website. She has a book. She has merch. I bought a bracelet from her that has my date, my sober date on it. Uh, so there are ways to support her. And during that 90 days, she also emails you every day. So now wow. those daily emails, she's not writing herself you know, it's an email subscription, but what it is, sure. is like messages from reminder. Yes. A reminder and messages from other people who are on the journey. So like if I wrote something really great one day, she would say, can I share this with the group? And then it would be one of those daily emails later on. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, incredible. There's also online Facebook groups. There's Celebrate Recovery, which is at most churches. There's got to be a church mm -hmm. in your city that does it, which yep. is a little less intimidating to me than AA, although I haven't been because there's never been a 
chapter very close. So yeah, definitely get support. So try for 14 to 30 days, get, try and do it with a friend, tell someone really close to you and then find an actual support system. Kelsey, how has getting sober changed your speaking career? It's been incredible because like we talked about the brain space, right? And all of the productivity that comes. Also, part of my deep childhood stuff as for why I was drinking was because I was not living out what I felt called to do, okay? I was shoving it down mm. and I was ignoring my calling. So getting sober, I was like, I got to do this now. I need to go do what I'm doing. I mean, my husband and I, a year and a half ago, packed up our daughter and our two elderly dogs, sold everything we <laughs> owned and moved across the country to LA mm -hmm. and just like things. But let me tell you the trajectory because this is the most hopeful thing. So I got sober and the next week, Scott Williams said yes to be in my pilot episode. You said you knew me from YouTube. So, and mm -hmm. you all know pilot means it might not go anywhere. So he was just being yeah. a guinea pig. So then the next month, Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank endorsed my book. Okay. And then my book became a number one bestseller on Amazon, thanks to her help. And that was just a wow. cold email, by the way. And so then because my book was successful, I was traveling to speak. And because I was traveling to speak, I had more opportunity to interview some big names. Of course, my whole claim to fame is my YouTube show went from zero to Tony Robbins in 18 months. And that's in-person wow. interviews, by the way, not just audio Skype. This is me going to where they are and sitting down and talking yep. to them. And then what's been really interesting is over time, the more I've been sober and the more I've been praying and working through all of my <laughs> you know, whole set of luggage, of baggage and issues <laughs> that I have is really leaning into the comedy as we talked about at the beginning yeah. and being funny and encouraging moms with humor. And so finally, I took the leap to put comedian on my Instagram bio, okay? Which if you're like me, you change your Instagram bio all the time. And you're always obsessing over it. <laughs> and yes, I was very yes. scared to put comedian why? Tell me. Well, first of all, if you're going to put comedian, you better be you better funny. Be funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no, you can't have a flop, right? Everything's got to be funny. Uh -huh. Every caption, imagine the pressure on the captions. Now everyone's going to go look and be like, but girlfriend, you are, you are seriously funny. <laughs> Thank you. But the other thing about it was it felt like a real departure. I mean, I started, I'm an entrepreneur. I've had my own business since I was 28. And back then, you know, I was all, all my interviews on YouTube were entrepreneurial. Everything was small business. So it felt like a big pivot to go from, I'm, you know, a public speaker who talks about women in business and those issues to I'm a comedian. Well, right after I changed my Instagram bio, Dave Ramsey's team reached out because their MC for Business Boutique, which is 3,000 women at their yeah. women's event for entrepreneurs, their MC couldn't do it. And, you know, they reached out to me. And that was just like a crazy, like, wow, right after. Yeah. And so if you, but I honestly 100% can trace all of those pivots and successes back to choosing, I'm going to get sober and I'm going to be serious about my calling and be present and awake in my life instead of, you know, zoned out half the time. That is amazing. And now you are someone who does group coaching for women who want to advance their speaking career. Where can people learn more about that? Yes, I'm very excited about this because a lot of the people speaking, teaching, Shaleen, are men. Like if you look, oh, there yeah, are hello. not very many women who yeah. talk about this. Plus, I just have to say, a lot of the people who do teach about this were pastors which I feel like is kind of cheating. 
Like mm. they don't put under the picture of them in front of a huge crowd that they were the youth pastor at the time. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Ah, Sketchball. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. so this is where for people who want to do this, you know, actually going and finding paying speaking gigs, cold turkey, start locally, work up, work up, work up. That's what I did. I have this fearless and funny speaker squad. That's what it's called. It's a mastermind mm. program. So you can go to KelseyHumphreys.com slash fearless and learn about that and when doors open and all that good stuff. Okay. And it was at this point that we ended the episode and the recorder kept playing. And because Kelsey and I are friends, you know, after we ended the recording officially, we kept kind of chatting. And a few things came up that were on both of our minds, but we hadn't talked about them in the episode. So with her permission, I said, hey, do you think it's cool if we include that little like personal conversation that we had? after the episode and include that in the show. And of course, she was totally down with that. So this next little piece wasn't intended for the podcast, but it's us chatting. And as someone who's learning to be more woke, like trying to be more aware, I just felt like this was a really good conversation. I know it was eye-opening for me, and I think you'll need to hear it too. So here's that part. You know, wine culture is a thing. In fact, sometimes I'm sad because there'll be a really funny wine meme <laughs> and I can't uh -huh. share it. And also, Shaleen, I have to catch myself even talking so much about like how much I depend on coffee. Like, no, mom, you can be a great mom without coffee. You know, like we just depend on all these things. And it's like mm. now there's this whole culture in motherhood, which is refreshing because we're letting ourselves be imperfect and be exhausted and be burnt out or whatever. But it's always like, so pour yourself a tequila, right? It's so toxic, but it's also really funny for people who don't have a problem. Yeah. So what's your position on that? Like, we just need to be careful. We need to what? Like, because are we normalizing it? Are we making it okay? Honestly, I think it's kind of like, it's so hard because like, for example, there's, I mean, even on Ellen's show, you know, she has momsplaining and there's wine or some of the touring mom comedians, their main thing is like wine time. So what mm -hmm. do we do? And I think that they have a responsibility to at least mention somewhere, mm. even if it's like cheers to the sober girls, like putting mm. that one line in their show would make a point that, hey, I'm not a freak for being not able to do this wine time thing right? Like they just yeah. don't even approach it. They just don't even think about it. And I'm happy for them that they're clearly not addictive personalities. How do we know that? It's not clear. I think when they're doing their wine segments and stuff, they should put it on the screen, you know, like something. I mean, they're not even mentioning it. And I think in a few years, it's going to come out about, in fact, there's sort of a movement happening. I follow a few of them on Instagram and they have books coming out some mom comedians and mom authors who were alcoholics talking about how it's not okay, that it's just everywhere in culture. And it's just like cigarettes. I mean, it's just being shoved down our throat on every TV show, every mm -hmm. funny mom ad, you know? Oh, yeah. It's at lunch. It's at, mm -hmm. you know, every get together and they just so normalize it, mm -hmm. which, you know, you, as a viewer, you have to realize they're doing that because they want sloppy content. You know true, what I mean? True. Yeah. Like that's why they're doing it. But again, like you and I have talked about, like they're just thinking, oh, maybe it's okay to have mimosas. Yeah. You know, on a Tuesday because I'm sad or lonely or stressed. Right. Yeah. When our kids were little, Brett and I used to trip out. Like we would go to Brock's whatever football game and then it'd be at 10 a.m. and at noon we're having a pizza party 
And it was crazy the number of parents who were like so excited to get wasted. Yeah, I know. And you're like, they're driving their kids home. Not only that, your kids are watching you. I know. Like they're looking at you just wasted at noon after a football party. Like this is strange. Yeah. There was a post that went viral that said, you do not need alcohol in order to mom. And it was a woman holding up a letter board that said that, I think. Alcohol is not required to survive motherhood or something like that. And it went Mm, viral. And those are the kinds of things that keep coming out that I'm happy people are posting it. And that's where, like I told you, I have to be careful for me, even implying that we're not going to make it through the day without chocolate or we're not going to make it through the day without coffee. But, you know, so I just try not to post a bunch of those in a row. That's the way I deal with it is just trying to be responsible about it. Kelsey, you are a riot. You're so fun. And I just feel so blessed to be able to call you one of my friends and to be able to work with you so often. And thank you for sharing this story. I really hope that, in fact, I know I'm positive today is going to be the day someone decides to change their life and it's going to be because of your story. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope it is. I hope today is a lot of people's listenings day one. You can do it. You can do it. Guys, check it out in the show notes. You definitely need to follow Kelsey on Instagram if you have a sense of humor. If you don't, don't bother. (laughs) And be sure, you know, if you're thinking about the speaking career, I also don't think we mentioned this, but it's one thing to learn from a female and it's quite another to learn from a female who's also a mom. Mm. So especially those of you who are trying to figure out how to do this as a mom, as a wife, you know, not that you have to be those things, but like, it's nice to hear that perspective too. So Kelsey, love you. Thank you so much for being here today. Love you too. Thank you so much.